but it's not really a group because it's one person, you know. Um, and I wasn't here last month. Anybody, was anybody here last month? How was uh, Laura? I haven't heard from her. She was good. She, excellent. Like, let's not go too far, okay? Like, just say, like, well, she wasn't you, but she was good. Something like that, okay? See what I'm getting at? Be here at the Zen Center anytime. It's fine. Last month? I know. I was teaching. I was teaching a retreat. Yeah, I had to end my Dharma talk early. Eleanor was at that retreat. What? You didn't. Well, that was a retreat. We're not silent anymore. <laughs> I did sneak back and see the last minute, nine minutes. Oh, you're too kind. No, you weren't. <laughs> you're watching the NBA finals. You're not thinking about me. So you watch it for me out of like codependence. <laughs> I, I came back the next day. The retreat ended that next day. I flew home and I watched the game that I had recorded, even though I knew exactly what happened. Yeah. All right, this thing needs to move. Yeah, thank you. So that's over, though. Now we're into the baseball season. Anyway, it's not about sports. This is about staying... It's not about staying sober, really, or clean. It's about recovery. That's different. I like this. I can... You know? And what I need is a sword, though. You know? That would be more... Because this looks kind of... You know, crude. So there's this great... You know, there's the... Uh, and they don't have it here. There's a bodhisattva Manjushri, and he has a sword, and he's cutting through the bonds of ignorance. You know, that's what I need. As a club, you can't club ignorance like, you know, that's, that doesn't feel right, you know. Yeah. So we'll just put that down, calm down. I, I wasn't here last month, so I'm excited. That's all I can say. And by the way, Joseph Goldstein is up the hill. One of my first teachers, one of the, uh, really leading Western teachers. He comes to Spirit Rock once a year, teaches a 10-day retreat, and they're hard to get into. So you're not there. But he's, we can make kind of, you know, really good teacher, not like me. But uh, the marketing department asked me to mention these two things. Two retreats coming up, like starting on the 23rd of July. Today is Bastille Day, right? The 14th, that means nine days away. Uh, it's a Sunday. Uh, 1440 Multiversity, has anybody heard of this place? Yeah, okay, because they like advertise on KQED. One Breath at a Time, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps Workshop. It's kind of a spa and meditate type place. Yoga during the breaks, um, but you have to be wearing Lululemon, or they won't let you in. You know, it's kind of they have standards, uh, but I mean, you know, no, not going to get away with the jeans with the holes in the knees. That's not the look we're going for. Yeah, no, it's not happening. 
Uh, so it's a little, you know, shishi, but it's like in Silicon Valley, it's Scotts Valley. I think they built it so that like all those yoga and mindfulness people at Google and Facebook would come there. So nobody's going to come. But if you want to come, I'd love to have you there because then you'd bring me some, you know, real recovery energy. So there's flyers out there for that. It's just too expensive. But this isn't that expensive. This is the uh, retreat that I teach each fall at Vajrapani Institute. And this is a real retreat. I'm not biased or anything about these different things. Uh, it's five days, uh, intensive practice. Uh, there's a certain amount of workshop time, but most of the time is in silence or noble silence. Um, it's really a rich retreat. There's there's a, like a core group of a dozen people that come every year, but usually there's about 30 or so people there. So uh, you should come. See? Now you know which one I prefer. But it's good. They're both good. I mean, you know. Buddhist centers. I'm biased in that regard. So anyway, moving right along. Uh, we're going to meditate very shortly. I'm just trying to think if there's anything else I should talk about before we start. Is there anything anybody thinks I should talk about? No. You're coming in here like Okay. I know, that doesn't make any sense. Um, oh, there is? Oh. They ought to have flyers for that. That's a good idea. Thank you. Marketing department. If you, you know, there's, a, there's an opening, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's right. It did. You thought it was. That's right. So yeah, so this is a, this this is the slow rollout here we're doing. It's a three day. Oops, wait. How do we do that? Three day, non residential, but not on the roof. No, there's. Where are those places? There's some rooms upstairs, and. Um, People are like looking, what? Where are they? If you go out in the, in the hall, there's some stairs, and then you can go up and look at the room. They're just rooms, nothing special. Um, and I think that's, we're going through the workbook, right? I thought you were in the marketing department. So we're really going to like work the 12 steps. It's like three days intensive, nine to four, nine to five, something like that. Bring your own lunch. You can't stay here. Non-residential. No beds. That's good. I'm going to be in San Diego. Never mind. You know, look at my website is kevingriffin.net. It's got all my stuff. It's, that's why it's so annoying because I do a lot of different things and then people are like, well, you need to advertise this and you need to advertise that. And it's like there's too much because you know how annoying it is to get all those emails from people who do all this crap. Um... So what we're going to do is we're going to meditate for a while. Because if I tell you how long, then you're either going to be like, well, that's too long, or that's not long enough, or you'll be watching your watch. So I'm not going to tell you how long, but you already know if you've been here before. So that's 
if you haven't been here before, then... How many people haven't been here before? Wow, look at that. See, I always think that's a bad sign. Because it's like, you know, why do I have to have new people every time? Because I must alienate people. They don't like me and then they never come back. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not going to come down on either side there. All right, that's enough nonsense. Forgive me. After we meditate, you'll have forgotten all this, so we'll start fresh. I'm going to... uh, Give some guided instruction on meditation. The beginning of practice is really just arriving in your body arriving in the present moment. Weight your body in a way that you can sit upright and still be relaxed and comfortable. Close your eyes or just lower your gaze. Start by bringing the attention inside the body, feeling the alignment of the spine, balance of the body. Relaxing the face, the jaw, the eyes, forehead. That sense of the mask falling away. Letting the shoulders soften the belly. Feeling the arms and hands, any sensations. Sense of just releasing. Settle in the body.
relaxing to the hips and pelvis, the legs and feet. Even in this process of letting go, discover a different life in the body. Get a sense of an inner calm or an inner quiet. Or aware of agitation. Stress doesn't just disappear. Try to relax. But we're tuning in now to the subtler experience of the body. Ordinarily in the background or in the subconscious, we're bringing it forward. Awareness of the whole body. Foundation aspect of this practice. Something that we can return to regularly. Whether in meditation or in our daily lives. Take to the life of the body. Also open to awareness of sound. Quiet meditation hall. It's my voice. Subtle sounds of a building. Hello, meditator. Finally, the sound of our own body internally. Start to tune in and discover what's called the sound of silence, the Um, or white noise in the ears. Their perception that's ordinarily in the background, but then can be used just like awareness of the body as a connection to the present moment.
both sound and physical sensations, we have perceptions that have no thoughts tied to them, no words, no images. Allow us to empty the mind as we just pay attention As part of this arriving, add in awareness of mood or emotion. Body, we hear sounds. And there's also this visceral experience of feeling. other experience that's often in the background. In fact, for many of us, often something we want to avoid or suppress. Part of our mindfulness practice is opening to what's present for us emotionally. That might be something obvious or it might be very subtle. Might not have a name. Just like sensations and sounds, it's something that we can pay attention to as a meditation object, as a mindfulness object. Again, no words attached. Often tell a story about what we feel. But that's something different from the feeling. That's a thought. The feeling has no words. It's just felt. Pass through. Feelings are really energetic experiences. They aren't solid any more than sounds or sensations.
So I lay this all out even before suggesting that you pay attention to the breath. Background of all that's going on. Helps us to keep a spacious, open mind, even as we start to pay attention to thoughts. Start to connect with the sensations of breathing now. Breath at the nostrils. That's not workable for you. of movement in the belly, rising and falling with each breath. Either of these places, either the tip of the nose or the belly can be focal point, the concentration object. Breath can first be perceived as two elements, in-breath and out-breath. Although the sensations are subtle, when we contrast the in-breath from the out-breath, it becomes a little more clear what the breath feels like, what it is that we're trying to pay attention to. Help to make a soft mental note with the breath. Calling the breath at the nostrils, in, out. Following the breath at the belly, rising, falling. Noting just helps the mind to stay focused.
natural for the mind to wander off into thoughts. Try to pay attention to the breath. Notice the mind has wandered, acknowledge that. Notice where the mind is, what the thoughts are. And then gently come back to the breath. Process that we follow over and over. The thoughts arise, we're swept away. We notice and we come back. back, settle back into the body, into the breath. Sometimes the mind is so busy, it seems as though we can't stay with even one or two breaths. Most important is to stay with the process. All our minds. at any space or any quiet in the mind. Struggling.
All right. Let's calm me down. Try to get a grip. Um, I apologize if I'm a little too silly in the beginning. I, th I think I get a little nervous when I get up here, you know, and I'm excited. But I also, so there's that. But there's also part of my, uh, you know, approach to teaching and to coming here to Spirit Rock is to kind of try to dispel notions of kind of uh, spirituality as like a really quiet, like, uh, Go in and wear the right, you know, scarves and be all holy. And, you know, especially for those of us in recovery, we don't need that stuff. Um, it just, you know, it just gets in the way, I think. So I like to blow that up right away. I think I did a good job of blowing that up. Thank you. Okay, so now we take time for questions, if there are any about meditation. We can get into uh, that stuff. And, and uh, Shane uh, has a microphone which will allow both others here to hear it as well as uh, I believe this is being recorded for posterity. For, so for all the posteriors that want to hear it. No, wait, that's not right. Although that was kind of funny. I have to think about that one. Any questions about meditation? Because you've been sitting here doing nothing for 30 minutes, so surely something must have occurred to you. Do you have any questions, Shane? All right, well... I can talk about that. I will say that you know, the way I guide meditation isn't... Oh, there's somebody in the back with their hand up. Aha. Uh -huh. We gotta take her. Good. I hope she... Are you one of the people I yelled at before? Pardon? Mm. Mean to them. You don't have to. Okay, this might seem like a silly question. <laughs> oh, good. Um, I'm just newly getting into um, meditating through my program. Good. And I'm really enjoying it, and I haven't had this experience until I came here. But is it normal to see things like if you get into deep into your meditation, see different things? So imagery that comes up. Mm -hmm. Is it? Well, yeah. You know, one of the things I think about meditation is that if it happens, it's normal. Mm. You know, I mean. You know, just but but um, certainly, are, are you seeing uh, specific things or just like abstract? Mm, no specific things. So okay, so you know, it's um, as the mind gets a little quiet, it's like the subconscious opens up. We're not restraining it. We're not repressing it. So stuff just kind of can appear out of that. It might be stuff we recognize or it might be stuff we don't. Um, but... Uh, well, I don't mind sharing what it was. Okay, go ahead. Um, well, at first it was just like eyes and then it was a wolf face. <laughs> uh -huh. 
Um, and then the next thing was just a really long hallway with a door at the end of it. A, a door, a what? A door, like a do- at, the, okay. at the very end, and it just was super long. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I mean, it's just like any other thought. I mean, you know, really, thoughts can take a visual form. Thoughts aren't always just words. So, uh, in meditation, the thing is to not get too fascinated by anything that comes up, whether it's a thought or an image or a feeling or anything else, an idea. Um, you know, it's all, it's all just um, the workings of the mind. And the practice of mindfulness isn't about figuring it out. It's just observing it, seeing it, seeing how it just shows up uninvited, it disappears, and then the next thing happens. So the important thing is, as I say, is to not kind of get caught up in like, oh, what's that? And what does that mean? Or, you know, is this symbolic? Is that my spirit animal, you know, coming to visit? What's the message? You know, that just turns it into another doing, you know, another attempt to latch on to something. You know, whether it's spiritual or material, there's clinging that happens. And all of that, clinging on any level, is really an obstruction from just being present and from just the the freedom that comes from letting go. Thank you for saying that because I do tend to overanalyze things. So <laughs> that was helpful. Thank you. Good. Hi. I'm new here. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Um, so my question is uh, what am I attempting to do while I. What am I attempting? Yeah, what am I, what am I, am I striving for anything while uh-huh. I'm meditating? Because I just, well, quick yeah. background is I started meditating about maybe four months ago with the Insight Timer. Uh-huh. And I uh, just started, you know, choosing the beginning ones. Uh-huh. And so now that I've done it, like... Now you want to know what the advanced teachings are, the secret teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Secret is there's no secret. Um, that, that's a really good question. You know, what's the goal? I think it is a little bit disingenuous to say, oh, there's no goal. But if you are setting out to achieve some goal, that's definitely not the goal. You know, that's going to get in the way of the goal. <laughs> so the paradox of meditation is that what we're trying to really learn to do, primarily what the, the starting skill, if you will, is to learn how to let go and to let go of thoughts especially. Um, but also to... And, and so the, the kind of... Um, the way we do that is by just trying to be present with whatever we're experiencing, whether it's feelings in the body, sounds, thoughts, just observe, right? 
I'll have to get back to that. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Shane. Uh, you know, the Buddha does talk very specifically about goals on the path. You know, it's not that he just he says there's no goal. But the problem when we begin on the path is that if we're looking at the goal, we're missing what's happening right now. Um, so, you know, if you're using your Google Maps, it doesn't, you know, when you go, okay, I want to go to L.A., and I'm in Woodacre, put it in, it doesn't show you L.A. It shows you Sir Francis Drake, you know, and then it tells you the next thing you're going to get to is the 101 South. That's all it tells you, you know, and that's all you need to know. Um, I mean, it does tell you, like, how long it's supposed to get there, but let's not take this analogy too far. <laughs> the point is, you know, we just kind of, like, do what's in front of us. Now, uh, because if you look at what the Buddha talks about as the goal, it's really the same thing. It's the same thing as the, as where you begin. It's seeing clearly what's real. And that's all we're looking at when we're being mindful. We're seeing what's, what's real. So there are levels of reality. You know, there, from a Buddhist perspective, the Dharma is very deep, you know, to see that, okay, I'm attached to my car, my house, and my kid, you know, yeah, okay, but beneath that, there's also other layers of attachment, right? And we finally, when we keep looking at that, we see that maybe the fundamental attachment is to self or ego. So the, the, the practice is the same if we're paying attention to my attachment to my car or my attachment to my ego. It's seeing how suffering arises through that clinging and that if I let it go, there's freedom. According to the teachings, there is this possibility of a kind of ultimate letting go, nirvana, awakening. Uh, and you could say that's the goal, that's the, 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 they say at the end of the, the path. But you, we don't, most of us aren't really in a place where we have to worry about that. So the, the, what I like about that is that I do, all I have to do is take care of right now and, tr- and trust in a process, which is actually what the 12 steps say. You know, we turn our will and our lives over to the care of the Dharma or the practice or the truth. You know, we don't, like, I mean, it's, a, you know, it's the same thing with the 12 steps. Like, what's the goal of the 12 steps? Well, <laughs> you know, there's... The starting point is getting clean, getting sober. Is there some end point? 
continuing to do that, right? And letting the layers unfold. And the same thing happens naturally with meditation. It, things will unfold, but you know you don't get to control it or even... I mean, you can work with, okay, I want to work on this or I want to work on, like I want to develop more concentration or I want to work, work to open my heart more or develop more understanding of uh, impermanence or something. You know, you can kind of point yourself along the path, but you really just don't control how it unfolds. So there is this whole faith element to it and, and the letting go element that you just step in and you st- keep showing up and you keep doing the next thing. Yeah, thanks for asking the question. It's a good question. Well. Hi, thanks. Um, so, when I first started meditating, um, I did with meditation what I had done in the 12 step program. Uh, I've been in. I've been. I've meditated longer than I've been in the twelve-step program in Al-Anon. I've been in Al-Anon for six years, and I thought that if I meditated long enough and I sat long enough, that I would have this enlightenment that we talked about, and that when I didn't feel the enlightenment, when my meditation wasn't, sometimes it was great, and sometimes. It was hard, and sometimes it wasn't so great, and sometimes it really sucked. Um, And I beat myself up about that, which I think a lot of us do, and started accepting that. I did the same thing with the 12-step program, which is um, having had... When I heard the the, the, uh, 12-step, and, and worked on the 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening, I thought, well, I'm going to have a spiritual awakening. And then I will be free of all of the things that I beat myself up about. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't happen that way, <laughs> much to my disappointment and chagrin. Um, so if there is a goal, I guess the goal for me now is... I have to say, and I don't know where this came from, I'm happier. I am happier. I know I'm happier. Yeah. And um, 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 I have a qualifier uh, in Al-Anon. And last week he was arrested. And um, I feel like I dealt with that myself way better than I would have six years ago. Mm. But that doesn't mean... I didn't feel pain. It didn't mean that I didn't want, I had thought in in my mind all these things I was going to do to rescue him. And I still felt sadness, shame. I felt all of those things. But what I didn't do is I didn't act on it. Uh And I gave myself permission to to just feel those things. And just like in my meditation... It arose, and it left, yeah. <laughs> and it was it was gone, and yeah. so um, I guess if there, like I say, if there's a goal, um, I'm not all over the place. I just realize that you know my mind does these things. I think these things. I feel yeah. these things, 
And that's like, okay. I think. (laughs) Yeah, of course it is. Thank you. You know, I I think I really appreciate that and the the kind of simplicity of it. And and, And I think the authenticity of it because I think we do get both with the 12 steps and definitely with Buddhism these idealized versions of what's supposed to happen to us of what even spiritual awakening means and that somehow it's going to take away all our problems all our painful feelings and you know we're going to transcend it all and I don't think that's what it does, what either path does. There's one of the suttas that I've been working with and writing about lately is about um, it's about attachment to beloved people and how that can cause suffering. And the beginning of the sutta, this man comes to the Buddha and his son has died and he's, the guy is completely out of his mind. And the Buddha says, you're completely out of your mind, calm down. Like, get a grip. You know, everything is impermanent. This is natural. This is the way life is. People, you know, our loved ones die and it's painful. And you need to see that truth and accept that. And the guy refuses to accept it. He goes off. But, but the Buddha gives this teaching that suffering is born from those who are dear. You know, suffering arises from those we love. You know, and it's a very counterintuitive and even like, you know, kind of uh, countercultural idea. You know that because you, know, you know that of course one of the you know models for happiness is oh having a family, having a big family, lots of uh, beloved people. But but yeah, the, you know, suffering comes from those uh, those people, and and. I don't think that what the Buddha is saying is you shouldn't have relationships or that you shouldn't care about people. He's saying you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't go crazy. You should understand that you're not in control of them that, and that there's going to be things that are going to happen, whether them maybe not getting arrested, but maybe they get sick or they die, you know. Uh, everybody who lives to a old age loses their parents and and so we all grieve and I don't think the path is supposed to mean that I don't feel anything when my parents die or when my child gets arrested I, I don't think that's spiritual to not feel anything over those tragic moments I think it's exactly what you said is that we're we're able to feel it but we're able to carry on and it doesn't throw us into you know, our addictive behavior or, or self, even self-hatred. But it, we understand this is, this is really painful. But we, ca- we continue on. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the... When I work in a treatment center, sometimes one of the things I say is that it's not so important whether I call myself an alcoholic or not. The, the thing that's impor- important to me is that when I was drinking and using, I had problems and I couldn't deal with them. Well, after I stopped drinking and using, I still had problems, but I became able to deal with them. 
And today, 32 years later, I have problems. They're different problems, but I have problems, and I'm able to deal with them. So, you know, that's what I think recovery is. I don't think recovery is that you don't have problems and you don't have feelings, you know. And I don't think that's what enlightenment is either. I don't think that's what spiritual awakening is. There you go. Um, this is my first time here. Well, it was really awesome. I really like that. Oh, good. I feel really good right now. <laughs> um, when I go into deep meditation, I go right into a lot of affirmations, mm-hmm. kind of naturally. Is that something you got taught to do? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I always have been into affirmations and mm-hmm. saying them. Um, but recently I've been reading some books and things that have affirmations in them and I've kind of naturally just implied them into my life and mm-hmm. I s- see myself saying them yeah. all the time and especially when I go into meditation. So I just, I don't really know much about affirmations. I just wanted maybe to... I'm the worst, I'm the wrong person to ask that because I'm very negative. I'm more, <laughs> I'm more into negations... Uh, but um, what, like, what do you? Uh, shouldn't take. Like, I wanted to ask him another question, but you can speak loud. What, wh- like, are there specific ones that you use? Like, I'd like to hear them. Maybe we can all use them. Uh, one is, I am whole, perfect, strong, powerful, loving, healthy, harmonious, and happy. Wow, how do you remember all that? I don't. Like, I, it's. I just, just. I've memorized you're young, it. Yeah. That's the one I go to all the time. And and as you're doing that, what's happening? I just, I guess I, um, it seems like I'm like putting that into my thought and into my... Um, are you thinking about the words? Yeah. Are, mm-hmm. I mean, are, you, are you doing it slowly? Mm-hmm. And the words are kind of going through and you're mm-hmm. kind of reflecting on their meaning? Exactly. And taking them in and feeling them? That's great. Mm-hmm. And that's... You know, that I would call that, I mean, yeah, it's an affirmation. It's also kind of, you know, a contemplation. It's a kind of meditation. So, you know, meditation in the English language actually doesn't mean what it means in Buddhism, you know. Meditation in English means thinking deeply about something, reflecting on something. And so that's more like, you know, Western meditation, we could call it, you know. Are, are you in a twelve-step program? Do you? Yeah, I do. So I you know how the? Have you ever read the, uh, the eleventh step and mm-hmm. Bill Wilson? So he tells you he has the Saint Francis prayer. So it's very much like that, right? It's some words that we're meant to reflect on and take in. So, you know, as you do that, as I mean, the the key is that being present with it. You know, you know, not not doing it. Um, in a rote way, but also not getting caught up in an idea that if you do this, some magical thing is going to happen, <laughs> right? But rather just reflecting and letting those ideas be inside you and kind of um, to cultivate those qualities and that, that sense of feeling in that way. At a certain point, I would say, if you get settled, to just kind of 
let the words fall away and just sit with your breath, but you don't have to. There's something else that happens when we let go of thinking. It's another... um, the, the, the risk in, in working with any thoughts, because we, we have the loving-kindness meditation we do around here, which is very similar. It's more about, may I be happy, may, may I be peaceful, may I be safe, similar ideas. And, and then, may all beings and other people be happy and peaceful and safe. It's very similar in that regard. Um, but the, there's always the risk of the mind getting caught up in control. So try, and and uh, kind of trying to, um, as well as kind of suppression, I'll say, but um, there's a certain value in being able to just watch what happens when you don't impose a lot of control on the mind and you just kind of let things come through because that's going to happen anyway in in your regular life, right? Because our minds just kind of do that. So one of the trainings we do in meditation is that we get, we start to notice what our minds do. We like pay a little extra attention to it so that when we're out there in the world and the mind flips into that, we can kind of recognize that. Like, oh, well, that, well there's that story that I tell myself and I've noticed that before. I need to let that go and just be here. So, you know, that, that kind of work as well as just being able to arrive and be present for something, like someone speaking or someone connecting with you, that, just being able to drop everything and not kind of have this background that you're saying stuff to yourself. That's the training that comes with with mindfulness of the breath. But, uh, you know, it sounds like what you're doing is very helpful, so appreciate hearing about it. Let's take a little break. We'll take about a seven-minute break. And then uh, I'll, I'm going to talk some about step seven tonight. There are some books around. My workbook, as well as my other books, are available. Where are my workbooks? Go?
All right, so uh, um, so uh, one way or another, I often um, reference one of the steps, one of the twelve steps uh, during these talks. And um, and often uh, use what we call the step of the month, uh, July. That would be step seven. And uh, I'll I'll recite it in a moment. But I see step six and seven. And step six and seven are kind of a pair go together. Step six says we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, referring to the defects of character that were revealed in the inventory in steps four and five. And then step seven says we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And first of all, these uh, two steps, and particularly step seven, are probably the most biblical in their kind of language. And uh, so they're they definitely need a little bit of uh, translation to make it into the meditation hall and to let the Buddha hear them. I don't want him to get upset. Um, so, uh, so I'll just say briefly that that I think these two steps are about... Uh, about letting go, you know, and they're about change. But rather than thinking about some, you know, uh, supernatural force reaching into us and extracting you know, some spiritual surgery to remove our shortcomings, um, you know, it's it's really about the the potential for transformation that happens on a spiritual path. And, and that then becomes an interesting question, to me at least, how does that happen? And, and in fact, I think from early on in my recovery, when I started to work with these steps, one of my questions was, how is that supposed to happen? And I was really unsatisfied with the, with the 12-step literature and what it said about these steps. Um, So, I actually brought the big book tonight, but I probably don't need to read it aloud. Uh, because I just glanced at that uh, part of the big book, uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous big book, um, about steps six and seven, which I remember pretty well because it, it always struck me as being uh, so like nothing. <laughs> like this is all you're giving me here, uh, but what I think is important about it, or, or at least one of the things that I think it can be useful about thinking about this process of these two of steps six and seven, and and I do kind of want to talk about them both, is that it says after having shared our inventory with typically it would be with a sponsor or whoever we've shared it with that we go home and take some time to reflect on 
have we done all the previous steps fully before we take step six and seven? So that, that uh, points to something else in this process. Let me see if I can find my way into this. Uh, step six, saying we're entirely ready to change, let's just say, or to let go. Uh, the, I think the Buddhist correlate to that is right intention. At least that's how I take it. Uh, I suppose there are other ways to understand it. But from a Buddhist view, you know, the preparation, what comes before the action is the intention. And right intention is the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, the second fold, I guess, if there are eight folds. Um, so that intention has to be clear. Now, there are three things that go into right intention. There are three things that the Buddha said qualify as a right intention. The translation says renunciation, but I would just say letting go. Non-harming and non-ill will. To put it in more straightforward language, I would say letting go, loving kindness and compassion are the three motivations that are considered skillful motivations, skillful intentions. So, letting go, uh, let's just start with that because that seems to be kind of what we're, since that's what we're working on here, letting go can happen on many levels. It can be something, we can let go of things materially, we can let go of things intellectually, let go of things emotionally, we can let go of people, we can let go of jobs, we can let go of beliefs, uh, we can let go of a mood or an emotion. So all of that is part of this process. But to get to that, because it says we were ready, so what makes us ready (laughs) to, to In other words, what gets us to right intention? This is a really important question, actually. Like, someone says, well, this is the way you're supposed to be. Uh, You might respond, well, why? (laughs) Right? Why why should I want to let go and be loving and compassionate? There's a lot of people in the world who live complete opposite to that. In fact, you know, greed hatred and delusion are, or at least greed and hatred uh, or aggression, let's say, are put forth almost as positive values uh, in, in culture. You know, go, going to war or, uh, you know, going after what you want, um, demanding what you want, uh, you know, acquiring, building up. This, these are all uh, things that many people believe are, are the, what we should be doing. So why not? What's wrong with them? 
we look at the Eightfold Path, what comes before right intention is right view. And this is in the list of the Eightfold Path, right view is what comes first. So what is right view? Right view is seeing how suffering arises and how suffering ends. How does suffering arise and how does suffering end? Well, if you've been hanging around the Buddhist world long enough, you have a good idea. Suffering arises by greed and hatred. And it ends by letting go of greed and hatred. Right? So there you go. That's the, that's the reasoning behind right intention. We don't do it because the Buddha said so or because it looks good on our resume um, or that even it's necessarily going to get us what we want. You know, at least in terms of our, you know, impulse. It might get, it might, you know, take away the exact thing we want. And for drug addicts and alcoholics, that's exactly what right view does. We see that the thing that we love is killing us. And so we realize we have to stop. And that's pretty painful. It's a huge letting go. But it's one of the reasons why people in recovery understand Buddhism really well. It's not a theory for, Buddha, for addicts. You know, the, the idea that clinging to things causes suffering is not just like, oh, right, like I really need to you know, downgrade from my Mercedes and just get a Prius. Like I'm just clinging to that car. You know, no, it's not theoretical. We understand that clinging is exactly, was our disease. It's like the disease of clinging. So that right view is what leads to right intention. And then right intention, what's the next thing in the path? The next thing on the Eightfold Path are the three forms of acting, the spiritual actions, following the five precepts called right action, practicing right speech, practicing right livelihood. What we're doing now, because the other aspect of the, what, right, what right view says when it says suffering is caused by clinging and freedom is caused by letting go is that there's a thing called cause and effect called the law of karma. And that if you act in certain ways, you're going to get certain types of results. And there are three forms of karma. I hope you're somebody's taking notes here that's very good this is being recorded too if you want to listen to this again on Dharma Seed the three forms of karma we know this but I'm just reminding you the three forms of karma are karma of thinking the karma of speaking the karma of acting and that's what the Eightfold Path is training us in it's it's showing us how karma works with right view it's telling us we need to set our intention to act skillfully to create positive karma and then here are the ways that we do that right action which is not to kill not to steal not to harm with our sexuality not to harm with speech not to use intoxicants positive action right speech to not lie to not harm people with our speech right livelihood to work towards Happiness, freedom, the end of suffering for people. So that's the form of karma that's action. 
but it is also the form of karma that's speech. Then the last three elements of the Eightfold Path are the parts that are training the karma of mind, the karma of thought. So those are the meditative parts, right? So meditation is often called mind training. When the Buddha teaches the removal of distracting thoughts, one of his famous suttas, at the end of it says, he says that if you practice in this way, you'll become the master of the courses of thought. He doesn't say you won't think anymore. Because a lot of times people get this idea, oh, meditating is like, I just need to stop thinking. Like, that would just make you stupid. Like, that's not that helpful, that you can't think. You want to think, but you want to think wisely. So the master of the courses of thought is someone who only thinks things intentionally, skillfully, usefully. So the mind training, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, trains the mind to create positive karma in the mind. So that's what step seven is. It's acting on that right intention. It's doing the things that bring about change. It's living in harmony with the law of karma. So the, the 12 steps actually repeat themselves. Step one there's a way of looking at step one as it contains the whole of the 12 steps. It, it sees that clinging is causing suffering because we admitted we were powerless, that our lives become unmanageable. The unmanageability is the suffering, right? It, by doing that, it's taking an inventory. So that's already an inventory. I admitted, because again, in step five, we admit again, right? We're just admitting more. We're getting more into the particulars of it. But in step one, we're already admitting. And although the step doesn't say it, everybody knows that the implication of step one is that we stop doing what we were doing. You know, It's the beginning of the renunciation of the path. So it's already letting go. So it's step seven as well. And, and I think it's a form of amends right away. Many people feel that as soon as they get sober, they're, they're, they have an impulse to make amends, but they're already, you're already making amends because the, you're, the harm you were doing was all out of your addiction. When you stop acting on your addiction, you've stopped creating more suffering, so you're already making amends. I left out step three, but um, you know, I, I, I think you know my, that when we say we're powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. There's a um, there's an implication that something else is going to step in here. You know, it's not. Um, Abandoning ourselves to the winds. You know, it's saying this way of living just simply doesn't work. And so the implication is there must be another way. So 
to me, step seven is is really kind of a fulfillment of this of this uh, process. I mean, it's kind of a completion or a cycle of starting from step one, and and it's you know what we understand that we could say that step one is addressing you know the addiction itself or the the substance or the behavior that that's the the um, identified problem and that once we've dealt with the identified problem and we make an effort to live in a new way we discover that there's a bunch of other problems. You know, it's yourself, right? I mean, we are the problem, you know. If it was so simple, if it was just that thing, okay, I'm rid of, no problem anymore. I mean, this is one of the things that, in, in some ways, people, you know, alcoholics and addicts, substance abusers, have an easier path than those who are in Al-Anon and CODA, and, you know, that, where they don't get to, you know, just put down the thing. But I don't think that, that the actual problem is any more solved for the addict or alcoholic than it is for the codependent or the Al-Anon or the, uh, any, anyone else whose um, problem isn't just a substance. That, that we have to deal with that underlying stuff. I mean, that's what step seven is, is implying, that, that it's not just addiction, but these so-called character defects. So, you know, and shortcomings. Um, you know, this is one of the places where people get stuck with this language, and, and certainly the language of the 12 steps is somewhat archaic and... and um, As I say, biblical, and not not always useful. Uh, this is why I think it's so important for us to, you know, step back and look at the steps as a process, rather than try to pick apart the particular words as, um, you know, sort of in an originalist way, you know, as the Supreme Court. Uh, Justices will say, because if we don't understand the process, then what we are doing is something more rote, and we're we're just filling in, you know, the lines, the workbook. Well, what's your version? What does higher power mean to you? And you write something in. Uh, what are your character defects? Okay, write them down. You know, okay, say the prayer, God, please remove, you know, I give myself to you, blah, blah. Uh, that doesn't do anything, you know. It's, if it doesn't have, if, there, if we don't have an understanding of what we're doing, of what we're really letting go of, of what, again, of what's causing suffering. So this practice is very revealing. It's one of, what's, one of the things that's very difficult about mindfulness practice. And people basically, 
I won't say people complain about it, but, but a lot of the questions people have about meditation when they're beginning to meditate are about how can I stop my mind being the way it is so that I can really meditate? And that's like a misunderstanding of what we're doing. Actually, the way your mind is is what you need to make friends with. You know, of what you need to come to some uh, understanding of. That's your inventory, right? That's what, those are your shortcomings. Those are the habits of mind the, that are creating karma. The, the uh, Dhammapada famously begins with the lines, something like, the mind is the forerunner of all things. There's different translations of that. But the idea is that all of our actions are preceded by thoughts or, or unconscious desires or impulses. And if we don't see that stuff, if we don't come to understand it, then we're constantly going to be driven by that. So when we sit down to meditate with nothing to distract us, that's what we get to see all the stuff that drives us, that conditions our behavior. So if we're going to change, we have to see that. We have to see, you know, the inventory of meditation to me is seeing these thoughts are really not useful. These thoughts are kind of helpful. These thoughts are real delusions. What is true to try to come to some understanding. This is why you know cognitive therapists have taken to mindfulness and created mindfulness-based cognitive therapy because looking at your thoughts and questioning them is very revealing. And again, that's why it's sort of ironic that when people start to meditate, start to meditate, they say, "Oh, can I, how can I stop these thoughts?" Nobody likes, seems to like their own thoughts. Very few people come in and go, how can I get more thoughts? These are great. I love these. They're so fun. And yeah, you can suppress your thoughts for short periods of time. And that can feel really good. And then you can be a really good meditator but you're really not learning anything. You're not really growing. And the transformation, the potential transformation isn't going to happen because you're not really working with the right material. And this is why it's a challenging path because the path is like through the gunk. <laughs> you know, you got to go into the swamp. Uh, you don't get to build a bridge over it. You know, the spiritual bypass. You have to go through it. Look at it, see it clearly. Where's the poison? You know, where's the healing? Which are the you know, herbs that I should eat and which are the ones that are going to kill me? So, I think I'll just, uh, I'll just close this. We'll have a few minutes for any thoughts and reflections. But just to point you back to this idea that the way we change our lives is through changing our thoughts, words, and deeds. 
that from a Buddhist viewpoint, that's how it happens. So as you think about this step, you know, you look at what, what thoughts, words, or deeds are getting in the way of your own happiness. What are you, what are you clinging to that's causing suffering? any thoughts or questions or corrections, reflections, be happy to hear them. When you were saying, like, which are the thoughts that are getting in my way or Hmm. causing the suffering, and when you maybe through meditation, you're looking at the mind field, yeah. you know, the inventory. Talk more about like that. Like, I mean, how much am I looking at it? Yeah. Without. So I think that, I think a good way to work with that is rather than, especially in meditation, rather than thinking about the thoughts to see how they feel because that's really the that's the suffering if I, I I don't know if this is true but it seems to me that thoughts in and of themselves aren't necessarily painful but the emotion that we feel in when we have the thought is where the pain is so if that's why being aware of your body, where the emotions kind of arise, where the pain of the emotion kind of arises, then helps you, kind of gives you the, the pointer. Like, oh, wow, that's really triggering. You know, that thought is really bringing up a lot for me. Well, that's not really helpful. Or there's, a, I guess I'm really stuck there, right? When I think of that person or, you know, when... Um, I think of that situation, uh, you know, I'm going to go to this event. Oh, wow, there's a lot of fear about that. Or, or I think of that person, wow, I'm still holding on to that anger. So I kind of I do it as a, as a felt sense. And that seems, seems to be the indicator. Uh, it doesn't mean that necessarily I immediately am able to let it go. But it kind of acts like a mindfulness bell. Like, oh, there I go again. Let me just come back and see if I can let it go right now. And then it'll come back, you know. Um, You know how the, I mean, I I was just having one of these, like, it's not exactly resentment, but like an irritation with somebody that I've been corresponding with a little bit. And, I, you know, like I was working today and like I got an email and you know it like came up on my computer like this just arrived and I'm like ugh you know I just felt that right I was like oh I don't want to look at this it's like but it was interesting at the same time I really wanted to stop working and look at it and see what he's saying now you know Uh, but you know that's the thing there's there you start to notice, because one of the things that happens is we start to notice these habitual 
reactions and patterns is that we stop taking it quite so seriously, which is why you're able to laugh, which is why you're laughing and why I'm able to laugh at that too, right? When you keep, when you watch the predictability of the mind and the way it just keeps falling into that same, you know, stepping into that same hole and refuses to walk around it, you know, it, it, after a while it's like, it's funny, you know, it's ridiculous. Uh, so that that kind of process, looking, feeling, seeing, you know, reflecting. That, is that I'm not sure it answers quite no, your question. No, that helps a lot. It's like my mind likes to go and do denial, so I'll distract myself once yeah. the feeling comes up. Yeah. You know, and, I, and, it, and I'm even telling myself during meditation, I'm certainly not going to like stop and look at that and maybe write it down so I'll remember because I'm not going to remember because 29 minutes later I'm gonna... yeah so but i think the the sticky ones yeah the, to they be, keep coming back so to allow the you awareness know. to to sink it and yeah. don't run away yeah yeah i'll, I'll try that to Thank see you. it and then feel what it feels like yeah, yeah. oh look at that <laughs> how convenient um I just had this thing happen this week that felt like a really step seven thing when I was, I just woke up one morning and my brain was just like on one, like spinning out into just imagining like all of these things I was going to encounter in the day that were like going to annoy me, you know, (laughs) like that hadn't even happened yet. Right. And it just felt like, like it was just, I was like, oh, like this is like a thing my brain does Mm -hmm. where like I have judgment or I have annoyance or like I have the, like the defilement is present and then it like goes out and seeks its object oh, yeah. in the world, you know, yeah. like, and it's like, these things aren't actually annoying. Like this, this thing is like going out and like chasing it, you know, yeah. it's really interesting. That's great. Well, it's like, I, you know, talk about irritability, mm-hmm. able to be irritated. You know, it's like just a way to extract that word, irritable, able to be irritated. It's like I'm just looking for something to piss me off, you know. Just come on, bring it on, you know. And there's, but there's also, as I've said, there's there's depressible, you know, looking for something to depress me. Um, there's desirable. I'm able to be like I have. It's. I think Joseph Goldstein actually talks about it like this. Like you get the catalog and you're just looking through it, trying to find something to want. You know, trying to find something to desire, you know. Wow, what a weird thing that we do that, isn't it? You know, I'm okay, I really don't need anything. Jeez, I wonder if I could find something to need so I could feel unsatisfied, you know. (laughs) Well, the thing is that desire, it's more than that, right? It's there's a chemical thing that happens with desire that is stimulating and it's somewhat addictive. It's, just, it's that gambling thing. It's that, uh, you know, the, the study that shows, <laughs> I love studies that show, uh, that the moment of the greatest amount of pleasure is right before you get the thing you want. Or, right? It's, it's like just when you like you know, hit, or I'm, I guess I'm just about to click buy. <laughs> I'm going to get it. Yay. 
you know, not when you get it. Like, oh, I got it, all right, fine. Now I need something else to want, you know. Uh, we're addicted to desire. There was a hand up back there. Thanks. Um, so, in the 12 steps, uh, step seven talks about removing um, these defects of character or shortcomings. And if I'm hearing you right, in a Buddhist approach, you know, there's really no third party to do that. And you're also not really removing them. Uh, you <laughs> talked about the surgery. Right. And right. I guess. Is it more that you are going to be more aware of them, uh, you know, uh, by, by being mindful? And then, I guess, through, uh, you know, skills and, and such, you talked about following the path that you're going to essentially be trying to change these things. I don't know if they're immutable. Maybe they can be minimized. I don't know if all of them are really even removable, even with the best of practice. But is that sort of more, you know, the the Buddhist, if you will, way of looking at six and seven? Well, I'll say it's more my way of looking at step six and seven. And my interpretation of of Buddhism making that connection, because obviously... The Buddha didn't talk about the 12 steps. And there are various different Buddhists these days who are talking about these things in different ways. And you could probably find uh, some other teachers uh, who would put it differently from that. But that's, that's essentially how I see it. I mean... I, it's, I think it's certainly possible that certain personal characteristics, if you will, to just neutralize the term shortcomings, just calling them characteristics, can disappear, uh, I suppose. Um, but I, th- you know, I think that it's not so much that things are immutable, it's that that there are sort of patterns to our personality that um, seem to be sort of like the genetics that we have. Like, I just, you know, I can't really change a lot of fundamental things about my body. You know, um, you could have a certain amount of plastic surgery and this and that, but you know, certain stuff is just going to stay the same. And I think our personality, our emotional habit patterns uh, are somewhat like that. But I also find that, I also think that um, that it's not so much that something gets removed, but that it can change the way it manifests so that uh, for instance like someone who's really critical could become a critic (laughs) 
you know, in, in a, somebody who's very analytical and uses that in a positive way. Rather than going around and complaining about everything, they might become very thoughtful and penetrating in their insight so that, so that they are doing service with that habit pattern of their mind. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, I sort of came to this understanding through reflecting on my own tendency to, you know, be kind of a dreamer. And I realized that that was also the aspect of my personality that's creative and that's gotten me writing music and books. So that it's the same characteristic but it can manifest in different ways. And I th- so I think that's one of, the thing- one of the aspects of recovery, that we manifest our characteristics in more positive ways. It's not that we become different people, it's just that we manifest in very different ways. That makes more sense to me than, oh, I'm just not going to... I don't have a temper anymore, or I don't get depressed anymore, whatever. You know, that... No, but that, that those things aren't running the show in the same way. Yeah. That's a good point. We have to stop. It's 9.14. So let's uh, just close with a brief dedication and appreciation and uh, radiation of merit. Take a moment to appreciate that we have this community. Center to support us. We are the recipients of many people's gifts. Work of many people. Back to the Buddha. Part of our responsibility to carry on those gifts, to pass them on. Carry the message. Share the merit. Spirit, we offer whatever blessings have come from being together tonight to the awakening of all beings. All beings be free. back here uh, in August. So I hope to see you then. And uh, if you're interested in any of the retreats, please take a flyer.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.